electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the Dow hitting new record highs before giving up its gains. What is next for the tech trade? Which value stocks still look cheap? And will stimulus checks that are beginning to go out fuel more gains in the near term? We'll debate all of that with our investment committee. Joe Terranova, Steve Weiss, Tiffany McGee, CEO and CIO at Pivotal Advisors, Megan Shu, head of investment strategy at Wilmington Trust, and Kevin O'Leary, chairman of O'Shares ETFs, an all-star panel today. Let's get a check on the markets at this hour. As we mentioned, the Dow giving up uh, an intraday record. We actually saw intraday records for the Dow, the Russell, as well as the transports, um, but of course faded as the morning progressed. The S&P 500 is coming off its best week since February 5th. Check out the 10-year note. Uh, We are just below 1.6%, 1.599%. Stephen Weiss, I open it up with you. Where are we? We've got Powell later this week. We've got stimulus checks going out. How are you feeling about the markets? I think we're in the digestion period right now. You know, the markets had this great propensity to discount news once with a major move down, knee jerk down. We've seen it basically every event over the last five years, including COVID. That was a bigger event down, but then it started to, uh, to recover. And I think we're at this point now with rates as well. So rates, farm buying, if you take a look at what happened at the auction last week, came in. 1.6 looks pretty good. 1.5 looks pretty good, particularly with the ECB saying we're going to get more aggressive and things not going so well in Europe. So that makes the U.S. market look good. I don't think really that investors are choosing between a 1.6 yield in in the 10-year and saying that's more expensive than yield in S&P. So I'm going to own bonds knowing they're going to go lower because not rates, but bond prices Because inflation is picking up, the economy is getting better. So here's where we are. The easiest part of the cyclical trade has been done. A lot of those stocks are overvalued. Doesn't mean they won't be more valued. And technology, the value part of technology, not the zooms of the world, not the teledocs, but the value part has reset a little too low. So we're going to go do a little bit of reversion to where we were before. So bottom line, I think you want to take off a little bit of equity exposure. I think you want to replace it. We've said it so many times in the past five years, but this will be a stock picker's market going forward. So I'm positively disposed to equities. Long answer to a short question. (laughs) We've got uh, no surprise, by the way. Uh, We've got a lot of uh, commentary from strategists (laughs) this Monday morning, which is also not a surprise. Credit Suisse saying that non-financial cyclicals look overvalued, although they remain overweight. Uh, financial specifically. Savita Subramanian over at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, bullish on earnings, but not on S&P 500 returns. Joe, where are you in relationship to Steve on the markets? And have we priced in a lot of the anticipation of this of this hot recovery that, that we're looking at? Well, first of all, let me let me comment on the cyclical uh, aspect. I do agree that financials 
would be uh, the, the cyclical sector that I would remain committed to in terms of my allocations, I would begin to pare back on some of the other cyclicals, specifically energy. If we move into a period where you begin to see the market kind of searching for a catalyst and you've got a 10-year Treasury yield, which gets very comfortable, which the appearance is that it is, with a level above 1.5%. That being said, I do believe the equities market still has a solid foundation to move towards 4,000 in the S&P. Uh, clearly, the blend of having exposure to some of the cyclically exposed industries, as well as a lot of the established growth industries, I think that's the right playbook as we move forward here. And we're only a couple of weeks away from digesting earnings once again. So in the interim, you're gonna search for a catalyst. Market's gonna trade intraday off some headlines, which obviously it's done today as it relates to the AstraZeneca uh, suspension of the vaccine in Europe with Italy and Germany and France. You're witnessing that. And then this morning, the introduction of a higher tax structure from President Biden's administration, I think that kind of would slow any appreciation for risk assets overall. So we might just be in a little bit of a waiting period, but ultimately we're going to make that charge towards 4,000. It is interesting that, uh, you know, the tax policy or potential tax policy that the Biden administration could pursue um, is looked at as a damper. When you take a look at, at the congressional makeup, Tiffany, it, it looks kind of unlikely that, that much will pass. But but still, with that said, let's say taxes for the wealthy, taxes for corporations specifically, go higher. That has been the fuel for the markets when it was initially passed, when the Trump uh, tax policy was initially passed in 2017. Would that offset what it pays for, which is infrastructure and, and other programs, which would require spending and uh, companies would actually benefit from? Yeah, so that 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 is a really good question, right? So possibly, you know, and I think if if I'm an investor right now, and I am, um, I'm looking at all of these headlines. I'm looking at you know what 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 Congress is doing. Um, I'm looking at the news of vaccines and 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 also uh, people actually taking them. Um, I'm looking at um, even cases, and I'm and I'm trying to figure out you know how do I position my portfolio going forward? And I think that the main um, ingredient here, right, that the, the main thing investors should be focused on is asset allocation. We kind of get, we kind of really got caught up in 2020 with all these high growth stocks and these really exciting stories um, and including an election and including, um, you know, uh, legislation. But asset allocation is, it can really be, um, it accounts for the majority of the return of the portfolio. I don't want people to, to forget that. So, the majority of your attention should be placed on asset allocation going forward. So it's not a growth versus value uh, uh, conversation. It's not a headline conversation. It is how do I position my portfolio to weather all of these headlines. And I would say that you need both growth and value because they do different things and you need to be diversified across all asset classes. And by the way, Kevin O'Leary, you can find value in growth. And I think that's what a lot of people are, are arguing at this point when you see the rotation out of the higher multiple uh, sectors within technology, such as uh, software. I don't know if you checked out the IGV lately, the software ETF. That's gotten hammered with this whole rotation, uh, Kevin. So in terms of interpreting value and where you can find it, you can have overvalued cyclicals, you can have overvalued value, and you can have undervalued tech. So where do you go? <gasps> Well, let, let's talk about one factor as an investor you have to consider. We've never taken $1.9 trillion, put it in a helicopter, 
and just flown all over the land, sprinkling it out. That's basically what we're doing. I actually read the, the bill. Uh, there's a lot of waste in there. I mean, it's really boring as hell, but you can find huge pockets of waste. And so as an investor, you have to try and figure out, okay, um, we're going to try and prop up a lot of dead businesses in this, and that's very ineffective and unproductive. And you have to think maybe two or three quarters ahead for what the real impact's going to be. The sugar high is great. You gotta love the consumer. You have reports coming out now that um, you know, half of this money is going into Bitcoin in the stock market. That was not the intention. It was supposed to feed people and let them pay their rent. That's how extreme we've gotten. At the same time, regarding volatility on growth, which I still say you have to stay the course on because it's empowering the new digital America 2.0. Every time I get into a discussion about the volatility of software or firmware or chips or anything, I say go look at the chart of Amazon over the last 17 years. Look at it, deal with it, and realize up to 38% corrections all the way through. So when tech has a massive correction or software sector gets soft, if you, don't, if you don't believe growth is still there, then of course you sell into it. But I don't think the story's over. We're not even in the third inning. So I continue to buy. That is my number one choice. I don't like value right now. Value is full of broken business models like the airlines, certain hotel chains, retail and commercial real estate offerings. These things have fundamentally changed, and until you sprinkle the $1.9 trillion sauce onto the economy, which is what's happening now, and let it percolate, let it distill, you won't know the outcome of those businesses. So I don't, you know, I don't shop for value because I think there's a lot of dead stuff in there, and that's why it's value. It's on its way to zero or much lower and not that attractive long term. Yeah, I mean, that's a distinction between value and a value trap. And, and Megan, before we get to you, I want to highlight this note from Goldman Sachs' David Costin. He's taking a look at which value stocks look cheap. This new note says defensive sectors like consumer staples, communication services, healthcare, they're trading the lowest valuations relative to their own histories. And also, we should know tech is uh, also below average in terms of valuation. Where do you go for value? How do you think about value in today's market context? Well, I think as you think about the direction of the market, we're very much focused on the outlook for economic growth, which we know what is going into the market in terms of stimulus. What we don't know is how much consumers are going to spend of that. Right now, consumer savings, even before the stimulus is in the system, stands at $2 trillion above the pre-pandemic level. So there's a lot of pent-up demand out there and a lot of savings that could get deployed. But I would say one thing to not forget about is that value doesn't have to reside just in the U.S. We're finding value outside of the U.S., uh, international developed equities, emerging market equities. These are um, parts of the equity market that tend to be more tied to the global economic recovery, which we still think is intact, even if uh, parts of Europe are having trouble with their vaccine deployment. We expect them to be on a, they'll figure it out. We expect them to get the act, their act together and be on a bit of a delayed timeline versus what we see from U.S. economic growth. So we like what we're seeing overseas. We're overweight to uh, international de developed and emerging market equities. And I think as long as we see interest rates moving higher, which is our base case, we see the 10-year yield going to one and three quarters to two percent over the next 12 months so higher but a much slower trajectory that is generally a, a really good environment for cyclicals even though they've made up so much ground in terms of relative valuations to defensives 
Joe, I'm curious. Megan had mentioned uh, the stutter step rollout of vaccines in Europe, uh, where they're halting uh, right now in France, for instance, the AstraZeneca vaccine going into arms. Is that a concern? Can we, as the United States, proceed with our very aggressive and so far successful vaccine vaccination timeline and be like China, which just posted amazing um, output in terms of industrial output up 35% in the first two months of the year. Retail sales were up 33.8%. Can we be sort of, you know, that, I don't want to say isolated, but can we see that sort of growth, that sort of bounce back if Europe has its problems? So I'll defer to the, uh, to the, the medical expertise uh, for Dr. Gottlieb, but what I can give you is that Europe really has struggled in its strategy towards this since the onset. So I think from an allocation standpoint, you can look at the United States and see that it will be very dissimilar in the potential favorable outcome versus what we're witnessing in Europe. And therefore, you can have that strong commitment within your portfolio towards a recovery and a rebound in particular for a lot of the impaired or injured parts uh, of industry uh, that was so significantly impacted by the pandemic last year. Yeah, I want to get to, Joe, your your value picks within technology, because this sort of goes to mm -hmm. the, the notion of the value trade within technology, Alphabet and Microsoft. And then you got Monster, which you can, you can explain later. <laughs> but in terms of Alphabet and Microsoft, how should we look at these? Well, that's 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 your established growth. And we, we speak about that. And, and Stephen uh, really explained it well at the top of the show. You're thinking about Alphabet. They're expanding the capital allocation strategy that obviously works well for Apple in prior years. And Alphabet saw that. And now they're beginning to incorporate that. In addition to that, you've got the ever expanding eco cloud system for Alphabet. So on the recent pullback, I was able to go in and take a position in Alphabet. Um, some could be critical and say, well, you're buying it up here. Yes, I am. How high is high is something that I often say, uh, so I have no concerns going in with Alphabet. Microsoft, clearly the most diversified technology company. I think they have the least regulatory challenge ahead of them. And if you think about the potential enterprise spend that's going to be coming, in a return to normalcy, I think it directly benefits Microsoft. Now, lastly, let's touch upon Monster Beverage, because guess what, Melissa? Monster Beverage is a consumer staple name. And if I mine for consumer staple companies within the S&P 500 that can show me revenue growth of nearly 10% over the last three years, well, maybe you've got Church and Dwight with about 8.5%. You've got Costco with 8%. And then you have Monster Beverage, above 10%. So that's the perfect opportunity to look for in what's viewed as a value-oriented sector, a company that's actually exhibiting strong growth. They've got over 40% of the market share in the energy drinks. They're incorporating flavor innovation, which has allowed them in 2020 to endure the pandemic environment and continue to grow. And looking forward, they'll probably introduce a hard seltzer at some point in late 2021 or 2022. Yeah. Um, Tiffany, where do, you, uh, where do you go here for value? Yeah, so, you know, I, uh, I've been staying away from, from um, 
the airlines, but I, I do see uh, opportunities for long-term growth in airlines. So one area is um, uh, Delta Airlines. So you know, and, and also um, Marriott. So Marriott is a staple that that I've owned for a while and I continue to love, um, and they're they're doing pretty well. So when you look at, and I know that a lot of people are saying that uh, a lot of the revenue that comes from airlines is, is on business is with business travel, and I understand that. But for me, it's a long-term play. So I look at it, look at uh, Delta and Marriott. When you look at some of the recent um, mobility indicators, when you look at um, you know air traffic, restaurant bookings, hotel occupancy, so they've really defied um, defied most um, uh, economists' expectations that they would fall um, as new cases and levels spiked um, towards like the beginning of the year. And so what I'm really thinking is that really bodes well for economic growth. Um, and with some states, you know, really starting to reopen their economies, and you know, this mobility data really shows uh, rise, you know, uh, a rise from these like depressed levels from last year um, and really resulting in what I think is a, a better um, better than expected growth for a company like like Delta and continued growth for for Marriott. We're going to dive uh, more into the airline stocks just ahead. Um, but uh, Steve Weiss, I wanted to go to you in terms of how how you think, you know, some of these value plays are recovery plays that have re-rated because of the of the recovery that is in the offing. Um, and, and so how how do you re-rate something or how do you come to evaluation for something where we've not seen this path before? Megan had mentioned $2 trillion in savings that we had, uh, you know, saved up during this pandemic. That could theoretically be unleashed in, in a much more powerful way because the last time stimulus checks went out, we were in lockdown. This time, things are open. I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you've got so much pent up demand. People have been sitting in their homes for a year. And even if they want to go out, the places they want to go to spend money, they just couldn't go. So particularly in Northeast, I mean, you had a few days of being able to eat outside, but otherwise, you know, it's been too cold lately. So the consumers are going to get out there. Flying we saw over the weekend, we'll get into that later, has picked up, it's ballooned. But just going out and doing, you know, a trip to the mall, you're just going to see people spending more and more. And the re-rating in stocks has caused me to take a look at, and I always thought it was there, by the way, the Corvos and the Skyworks and the Qualcomms, they're value stocks. They're going to grow whether we have the pandemic or we don't. You pull forward demand. Kevin referenced the digitization of the economy. That's real. That's happening. It's unlike prior cycles. So you get both some cyclicality in terms of the chips, which is picking up market share. So the total addressable market of the chip companies, particularly ones I mentioned, has gone to levels you can't even calculate. So at 15 times earnings, growing more than 50% in the bottom line and 20% in the top line, to me, that's a lot more value than Freeport McMoran, where you've got to really hope the economy just hits levels we've never seen consistently for years to justify the valuation. So on the growth side, you know, I'm with T-Tech, which is bookings are up over 50%. They're going to grow earnings also about, well, almost double, actually, because of the client experience referencing what the pent-up demand is. They handle the client experience on the web for most of the companies you've heard of, including Amazon. So I like that. I like Musics in terms of the growth side. You know, so, and Moderna is the cheapest stock in my portfolio still. Great cancer data last week, and they're just going to cure cancer. They're going to cure, you name it, with the new technology that they've come out with the vaccine. 
All right. Well, Tiffany and Steve mentioned the airlines, millions of people getting vaccinations, states reopening, large numbers of Americans are getting back on board. Phil's been digging into the latest number. Phil Lebeau, that is. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa, I've got three stats for you regarding how the airlines are noticing a change in their business. Let's start first off, as you take a look at the airline stocks, the J.P. Morgan Industrials Conference is going on today, and all of the CEOs are talking about booking trends. And this is the first stat. There is a dramatic change in booking trends, particularly when you look in close-in bookings, and then even extending out into May and to an extent into June. All of the CEOs are noticing a dramatic improvement there. The number of people who are going through TSA checkpoints, that is also starting to turn. 14% increase this this last week versus the week before, up 27% compared to three weeks ago. So I know it may be a little hard to tell from this chart, but we are seeing more people who are actually getting on board. And finally, American Airlines. We just talked with CEO Doug Parker just a few minutes ago, and we talked to him about when they might get the break even. Now, he won't commit to an exact time. He thinks it'll probably be sometime in the second half of this year. But he did say, look, we've got $17 billion in liquidity in the first quarter, at the end of the first quarter. He believes that gives them the liquidity they need to go forward from here. And then the question becomes paying back the debt because they are, of all the airlines, the most indebted, if you will. They've got the highest debt level. But no doubt, all of the airline stocks moving higher today on the fact that more people are flying and are booking trips. Melissa? All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau in Chicago on the airlines. Kevin O'Leary, I go to you. You do not like the airlines at all. You are short the airlines through the Jets ETF. Why is that? Phil just painted this rosy picture about reopening. Steve just had mentioned all these people pent up, locked up in their homes for a year plus, wanting to get out. Isn't this the prime time for the airlines? No, not at all. Phil referenced first to do the checklist of things you can hate about airlines. Let me count the ways. Number one, the deterioration on their balance sheets, and I mean all of them, in the last 14 months is unbelievable. You know, it's great we bailed them out, and we continue to do that either through extending unemployment for their employees or direct loans to them. In some cases, they tapped capital markets if they were able to, but they significantly deteriorated their balance sheets. The assumption and euphoria is, yes, everybody wants to get out, and I agree, everybody wants to go on a vacation. That's the $89 seat to Disneyland or the islands or, you know, somewhere else. That is not the high margin profitable business travel that goes domestic or international. In fact, what I see, and this is what I don't know yet and why I'm short, is by Q4 and definitely by Q1 of next year, we will find out what the permanent impairment is to the model where you used to fly your executives all over the place to do business. The empowerment of digital technology to avoid those trips could be a 10% factor, could be 15, could be 20. I'm aggressively slashing business entertainment and business travel in all my private portfolios, and I'm proud to say in some cases we've been able to get away with 50% reductions. The last thing I want someone to do now is get on a tube and fly somewhere and spend money when I know with certainty they don't have to. The technology that allows you to have a direct relationship with a client, a customer, a buyer, or anybody else around the world is clear. Those were trips we used to make all the way over to Dubai or Germany or Geneva. We haven't done one of those, and we're doing just as much business as we ever have. So I'm getting out the machete, and I'm chopping, and I'm hacking, and I'm making it very difficult 
for any employee to book business travel without going through a mountain of paperwork to understand why they're doing it. I am not the only person doing that. I am making the assumption that this damage will show up sometime in Q4 or Q1 and be a permanent impairment to the business model of airlines and you're going to have to see some consolidation because I'm betting now no one's going to bail these guys out anymore from government money. They've got all they possibly could. Let a couple of them go bankrupt, consolidate capacity. They're very, very good at bankruptcy. They do it every 10 years. It's, it's wonderful for the airline industry. It reduces the unnecessary older aircraft and it allows some reduction of capacity. But I think making money at 89 bucks a seat is going to be a brutal business. They're going to have to sell you peanuts for two bucks a bag. Uh, you missed Phil's report, I think, last week or two weeks ago saying that airline prices, ticket prices, are going to go up every month on average by 6%. I mean, we're not talking $89 seats to Orlando forever at this point. But I agree with you in terms of the concern about the business travel, uh, Megan. Some would argue that if you have an existing customer, an existing client, it's okay to do it by Zoom. If you want to get that new account, that new deal, you might have to take a plane. Yeah, but I, I think Kevin really nailed it. Um, so I don't think business travel is going away completely, but maybe instead of going to see that existing client every month or every two months, you really prioritize those new relationships where an in-person interaction is really beneficial. I think at the very least, business travel is going to take longer to recover. And it is. It's a, it's a game of scale. So if business travel is only 10% of your seats, but 75% of your re of your revenue to make up with for that. Uh, just a few lost business travelers. You've got to scale up your leisure travelers by that much more. So I do think it's a you know it would have been great to be in airlines off the market bounce. For now, we do think it's going to be a a challenging road ahead. Weiss, it's Monday morning. I'm in a good mood. I'm going to let you do something you would probably enjoy doing at this point. Tell O'Leary why he is wrong. You are long the Jets ETF. I'm long Jets. I'm long United. I'm long Boeing. You know, let's put it in perspective. Kevin doesn't believe you should buy a cup of coffee outside your house. So he's just cheap. I don't blame him. He's done well being cheap. But let's talk about the airlines specifically. I also agree with Kevin in terms of they're not the companies they were. Their balance sheets are upside down at this point, but they do have liquidity. They don't need to be bailed out again. This is a momentum trade, not just a stock price momentum trade, but a fundamental momentum trade. So as the stocks traded up today on increased traffic over the weekend, they'll continue to trade up. You'll see business travel come back big time initially then I agree, it'll be less frequent. But I'm not going to be there a year and a half down the road. I'm not going to be there maybe even a year down the road. But I think over the next six months, as you continue to see TSA numbers come out with increasing traffic, they're going to do very well. I've flown back and forth to California, and I can tell you the front of the plane was full in both cases. And I can tell you I'm booking trips to, to the U.K. or my daughter's in London going out a little bit. Those tickets are not cheap. So, look, so I think pricing does come back. You'll have limited capacity so they can price more aggressively, and they have to price at this point. They have no choice. So I think over the next six months or so, maybe nine months, the airlines can be great plays. I'll let Kevin respond to the accusation that can Steve I made that he is cheap. Uh, I am cheap. Thank you. I take that as a compliment. <laughs> 
I'm, I definitely want value for my dollar, but you know, the question for Steve on this airline trade is timing. When the market smells a fact that maybe business travel is impaired 15%, it will be very swift in punishing these stocks because then you have to start figuring out who survives and who doesn't in the post-pandemic world. And I don't know when that's going to be. That's the challenge of being short, particularly an index like this. You never know, but you get rewarded a whole lot in a really short period of time. And I don't know when that day the tipping point happens, but right now I'm just going with my own anecdotal information. Just started doing Q4 budgeting on business travel, and I've got the machete out, and I'm just licking my chops as I hack and slash costs like I've never done before, and I'm thrilled giddy about it. This is fantastic. All right, cheap is in the eye of the beholder, I Can guess. Can I add something? To yes, go, go ahead quickly. So really quickly, uh, I, I think Kevin's thinking about business travel from a transactional standpoint. And while that might mellow out, business is about relationships. And so it's really hard to have a dinner and eat a meal and build a relationship over Zoom. Yeah. Well spoken. All right. Coming up, new straight high call for one big bank stock. It's already rallied over 20 percent this year. We'll debate it in our call of the day. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. Halftime. Be back right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. The investment committee is making some moves. Tiffany, you are buying more Bumble. Why? I did. Uh, well, the story's great. I, I think that, you know, definitely from a girl power standpoint, we love uh, what the CEO has been able to do. She's one of the first women uh, who's been able to IPO a tech company. But when you look at who she's up against, right, she's basically up against one company, Match. And Match owns everybody else, right? So Tinder, everybody else, all these other dating apps that, that you could possibly imagine. Tinder's number one. She's number two. Uh, there's also room to grow. They just reported earnings, by the way, last week, and everything they, they've they've been they've actually had revenue since 2020, um, but the numbers looked really good. Um, and so Tinder's got about 196 markets. Bumble has 25, so much more room to grow. They're also expanding into um, Bumble BFF uh, and also Bumble Biz, where you can have uh, connections with non-romantic connections. And they're also creating this uh, Bumble Night In, I believe, where you can uh, actually 
actually kind of have these like uh, uh, dates, uh, virtual dates with, with your matches. So I really love what, what Whitney's been able to do, um, and I can't really uh, wait to see what she's going to do in the future. All right, let's get to our call of the day now. Wells Fargo's banking analyst Mike Mayo is getting more bullish on J.P. Morgan, reiterating his overweight rating, raising the price target on the stock to a new street high of $185 a share. This comes as the financial sector hits another new record high today. Kevin, you own J.P. Morgan. What's next? J.P. Morgan has the best. Yeah, it's well. First of all, he's a bit of a hammer in this space, particularly on the wirehouses, as well. But and I love I love the call because I own the stock. But it's the best balance sheet in the banking sector. I've never I haven't been that big a bull on financials for the last couple of years because the return on assets has been you know. Not abysmal, but there's many other sectors that have done much better with their capital. But now that we have a 1-6 a handle on the 10-year, that's obviously helpful. That's obvious. But in terms of just success in, in the business of banking, you have to hand it to J.P. Morgan. So for me, instead of diversifying across maybe three names, I'll just take a 5% weighting in that one, knowing that it is the gold standard. And, and I've been rewarded for that. But I, I'm, I much prefer the other services company payments I really like. I like a lot of the fintech that's getting scale, even though the valuations are crazy. And, you know, it kind of plays into the digital economy, whether you're into Bitcoin or not. You're starting to see all those trends. And you want to be exposed to some of those as well. But the Stallworth pillar in a portfolio, if you're going to own financials, has got to be J.P. Morgan. Yeah. Megan, you actually like the payment stocks, some of the fintech stocks? Yeah, we do. So we do like banks very much. It's one of our highest conviction calls. But within IT services, payment processors are very much related. A lot of the same themes. You get some growth drivers um, and some really positive, strong earnings growth, but also a lot of exposure to the reopening and the fact that consumers do have a lot to spend. We do expect to see new business growth. So we do like the payment processors and also banks. And I would say banks the higher yield curve is important. The steeper yield curve is also incredibly important. And if you want to be more geared to that, um, we do expect the yield curve to steepen further. Regional banks would be another way to do that as well. All right. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now with some other street calls you need to know about. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Melissa. Yeah, let's start with the Viacom CBS getting downgraded to underperform at BMO. Although they are raising the price target from 60 bucks to 70 bucks. So the stock has had an impressive run. It's up about 160% year to date. The note focusing largely on the competitive environment for the new Paramount Plus streaming rollout. You can see shares are up about 2.2%. Uh, Dollar General goes to overweight at Atlantic Equities. Target here goes to 243. Stock is negative for the year, and Atlantic thinks that that pullback makes a nice entry point for a fundamentally high quality long term growth name. Jeffries is upgrading MGM to buy. Target goes to $50 from $36, partly on Las Vegas, reopening faster than the rest of the country, Melissa, and also a bullish view on sports betting and bet MGM. Optimism over the reopening has that stock almost 600% higher from its pandemic lows. And Gap goes to a street high of $40 from $32 at Wells Fargo. Note points out that Old Navy and Athleta, they're both poised to gain market share. Analysts also like the cost cutting and the real estate right sizing, like the shifting to off-mall locations. We've heard other retailers say that. Stock, by the way, up 60% this year. Melissa, I'll All send right. back to you. Rahel, thanks. Rahel Solomon. Up next, the big ETFs to watch today. And as we head to break, a check on the S&P 500 sectors. Energy, uh, the worst performer, down almost 2% of this point. Utilities uh, leading the S&P up 1.1%. Halftime, be right back. 
What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Two people have been arrested for assaulting Capitol Hill police officer Brian Sicknick with bear spray. Sicknick later died of injuries suffered during the January 6th riot. Suspects are also charged with assaulting two other officers. Derek Chauvin's defense attorney says that it may be impossible for his client to get a fair trial after Minneapolis agreed to pay $27 million to settle civil rights litigation over the death of George Floyd. Half the jurors for the case have already been selected. France and Italy are the latest countries to suspend use of AstraZeneca's coronavirus vaccine. Both countries ordered temporary bans amid reports of a small number of people getting dangerous blood clots after taking the shot. And apparently very few Americans are missing their second vaccine shots. The head of the CDC says that just 3% of people who got one dose have failed to complete their vaccinations. You are now up to date. Melissa, I'll send it back to you. Thank you, Rahel. Now let's get to Bob Pisani with ETF Edge. Bob. Thanks, Melissa. There's two big investing trends in ETFs, momentum trading and clean energy. Would you buy a FOMO ETF, a fear of missing out ETF? There's one in registration right now. Here to explain it is Matthew Tuttle from Tuttle Tactical Management. Also joining us, Sylvia Jablonski. She's the chief investment officer at Defiance ETFs. They run the brand new hydrogen ETF, HDRO. Matt, let me start with you. Everyone's trying to capture the crazy nature of today's trading, these wild gyrations between growth and value, the Reddit stocks, the reopening stocks. We've got momentum ETFs that rebalance twice a year. We've got a buzz ETF that rebalances once a month. Now you're proposing a FOMO ETF that rebalances weekly and can buy anything at all. How are you going to do this? How do you set up a momentum trade like this? Yeah, so I mean, as you mentioned, there's so much going on and the pace of change is faster than it's ever been. So if you're rebalancing twice a year, even 12 times a year, by the time you go to actually do something, it's obsolete. So all of our ETFs right now trade weekly. We believe you've got to be able to move on a dime. And FOMO is about being in everywhere that you need to be that's currently hot right now, being in the right stocks at the right time in the right proportions, and then being able to move really quickly. And I think the question then is, do you go in and out of a moment? You have a momentum indicator that buys the, the stocks with the biggest momentum and also buy stocks that are lagging as well, sort of reverse, reverse momentum indicator, right? Correct. So we've got two different components to it. We've got a trend following component where we want to buy the stocks that have been hottest over the intermediate term. But then we've also got a counter trend component where we want to buy the stocks that have gotten beaten up over the short term right. because typically those are the stocks that are going to come back and, and that smooths out the returns over the whole portfolio. Okay, Sylvia, clean tech was hot in 2020. It's even hotter in 2021. Why do you think hydrogen is going to be the hot clean tech story this year? Well, 90% of the world's energy consumption comes from fossil fuels, which are bad for the environment. 
hydrogen is a good alternative energy source and it can provide up to 25% of our energy needs in coming years. So right now there's about $150 billion investment in the hydrogen space. That is thought to be growing to 11 trillion in the next two to three decades. So you can see that's you know a massive reason to look at this space and, and invest and get there early. But basically, hydrogen will be able to fuel our vehicles. It'll be able to power forklifts and do all sorts of things that support uh, corporations and the way we live. But the biggest thing is that it's getting cheaper to do it. Their technology exists and it's getting better and more efficient. So it's more um, there's more ease in creating hydrogen as an energy source. And finally, there's this massive um, political environment which really supports the hydrogen trend. So the EU, the U.S. are all uh, yeah. uh, saying that they're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. So the amount of investment and effort that has to go into that is huge. And hydrogen is really on the cusp of that revolution. Okay, tune, us in, uh, tune in at 1 p.m. Eastern time. We're going to be on ETF Edge. We're going to go much deeper into how ETFs are trying to capture all this frenetic trading activity with Matt and Sylvia. And Harry Witten from Old Mission also joins us with a perspective on ETF trading trends. That's all ahead, etfedge.cnbc.com. Halftime, back right after this. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon. We have a market flash right now on pot stocks which are jumping to their session highs here in the last few minutes. This is as New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says at a news conference that the state is getting close on marijuana legislation. Those comments were, we've tried to do that for the past three years. We have to do that this year. We're very close on marijuana. Truth is, we've been very close before, but we have to get over the goal line this time. Take a look. Shares of Tilray are up about 12%. Tafria also up about 12%. And the broader MJ ETF jumping more than 3%. Uh, Cuomo says that the state does need marijuana reform and recreational legislation to help with its budget shortfall, which was made worse by the pandemic. But again, Melissa, those pot stocks jumping to their highs of the session, as it appears New York, according to the governor, may be getting closer to legalizing recreational marijuana. I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. The Investment Committee is looking to answer your questions. First up, one for Joe. Tyler in New Jersey writes, I bought Teradyne a while back after you recommended it on the show. I saw you recently sold it. What do you suggest I do with it now? What do you tell him, Joe? Well, Tyler, it's very difficult to give a suggestion. I don't under, have an understanding of how much in your portfolio you're holding of Teradyne. But let's make an assumption that it is less than two and a half percent. At that level, I would hold it here. I would wait to hear from management uh, on the upcoming earnings, which is the end of April, where they stand on the auto chip shortage. And in addition to that, where they stand with the significant revenue exposure they have to Apple, which is recorded nearly 25 percent. So I would take a wait and see approach on getting out of the stock or even adding more until I hear from the company on earnings. Above 2.5%, you recommend selling down to a 2.5% position? Uh, above 2.5%, I absolutely would be yeah. putting a stop in here as the stock has broken down significantly. I've sold out of it. The 200-day moving average sits at $100. So above 2.5%, yes, I would be looking to uh, put a stop in to make sure you get that allocation and waiting below two and a half percent. Got it. All right. Next one's for Weiss. Jamal in New Orleans asks, Steve, what are you doing with Jumia now? So I've recently bought more. Stock's down from 66 to, to uh, well, it got down to the 30s where they priced their secondary. Look, it's very unusual to be able to buy a company with this kind of growth, essentially a, a mini Amazon 
where there is no Amazon, with 1.2 billion people as their market, online penetration so low, and eventually this company could break into three. Jumia Pay is growing like a weed. They're digital. They've got the only logistics company, which is 300 partnerships. So basically, it is a low low CapEx company with super high growth, and they'll be profitable long before any other online seller you've ever seen reach profitability. All right. Thanks for that, Steve. Uh, Bitcoin pulling back after hitting new highs over the weekend. How the futures traders are playing it. That's next on Halftime. Time for Futures Outlook, and we are watching Bitcoin after its weekend surge above 61,000. Let's bring in Brian Sullen for the trade. Hey, Brian. Yeah, it is moving. Every time you seem to look up, it feels like, hey, this thing is moving five or $10,000 higher. So the real belief here is we've never before in history had a monetary value storage place that is traded down to decimals and has a finite limited supply. So it's a huge technology that more and more people are adapting. That's why we're seeing it taking off. If it ever replaces gold, it's got a whole lot more to go. But let's just look at it as a trader's perspective. Some of these technicals you're seeing right now, this 55,000 area is a nice support area. If I'm a trader, guess what? I don't need to actually have a Bitcoin account. I can trade Bitcoin futures on the CME. If I'm looking at the March futures contract, I'd be a buyer, 55,500, looking for it to trade up to 60,500. The stop at 51,000, you saw some of those technical levels. The 50-day moving average is significantly lower. We failed to ever get anywhere close to that. So I think there's some room to go to the upside still. But remember, folks, this is a big contract. Each contract is five Bitcoins. So, you know, you're talking about an enormous amount. You're talking about a contract that's very volatile. So you got to play careful. I'm long Bitcoin, but I might look to add a little bit if we see that 55,500 level. All right. Thanks, Brian. Brian Stutland. Coming up on Fast Money, we're going to go deeper into the Bitcoin trade. We'll break it all down with Melton Demures of CoinShares. That is tonight on Fast Money, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Meantime, final trades ahead on halftime. Final trade time, Joe. Melissa, listening to Rahel talk about New York State potentially legalizing marijuana, I think about Penn National Gaming and mobile sports betting. It's coming to this country in multiple states. That's the real revenue increase play. Steve Weiss. Vuzix, V-U-Z-I, they report tonight. I think it's going to be phenomenal in terms of what CEO says about the future and the current order book. Tiffany on track. It was getting hammered because they lost their biggest client. This is a long-term play for me. We love the technology. It's in the past a few days, it's back up over 31% and still up 216% for the year. Megan. In the, in the past year. Oh. <laughs> Megan. Uh, financials, specifically banks, the fiscal and monetary policy backdrops, very supportive of loan growth, declining bad debts, and continued profitability as the interest rate uh, environment, interest rates rise and the yield curve steepens. Kevin O'Leary. Facebook, I'll tell you why, 1.9 trillion sprinkling onto the consumer. Where are advertisers going to go? Where more than the majority of digital spend is, Facebook geolocked advertising, they're gonna have a killer quarter. All right, That's that, does, the name. that does it for us. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. 
With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.